you have that name of one in your heart right now? I think we probably all have someone's name in our heart. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a, a parent. Maybe it's a co-worker. Would you just close your eyes and lift up your heart to God? Just lift up that name as I pray for you. Father, you, um, you know our thoughts. You know exactly whose name is on each heart this morning. And we just ask you that you would be gracious to them and show mercy to them and draw them to your Son. We know that no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. But you use us, Father. You said that as we follow, then we can lead one. And so I pray that we would follow you as your disciples and that you would use us to reach that person, whoever it is, Would you allow us even this week to see some inroad into their life? For Jesus' sake, amen. It was the fall of 2008, and I was having a discussion with my oldest son who had just graduated from university with a degree in in international business. And um, we were talking about what he wanted to do with his life, and he said, Dad, I want to impact the world. I just don't want to do it your way by which he meant the missionary way. Now, when Joel made that statement um, eight years ago, I'm not sure I was really listening. After all, he had just graduated from university. He was adventuresome. I was grounded. He was idealistic. I was realistic. He hadn't even landed his first real job yet. I had just been named the president of this great commission ministry called Crossworld. I think I figured that that Joel would learn soon enough that the well-worn tracks of the missionary movement carved into the soil by godly men and women over the last 200 years were tried and true and that they would work for him as well. You need to understand that I was not hurt or threatened by what my son said to me. He has great respect for my particular profession. But I was frustrated, not by what he said, but frustrated at my own inability as the leader of a Great Commission ministry to be able to offer a pathway to people like my son other than the path that I had taken and other than telling him, you leave behind your career and your secular university training and you go back to Bible college and you go back to seminary and you get a real ministry degree and go out and raise full-time support to become a real, full-fledged missionary. Joel is not alone. There is a growing, uh, a large and growing untapped resource of godly men and women who want to impact the world not by leaving behind what God has given them, but by leveraging what God has given them as a tool to take it to the nations. Not just on Sundays, But on Mondays, you may not realize this, but God loves Mondays. Contrary to popular opinion, God's favorite day of the week is not Sunday. I think it's Monday, and I want to tell you why this morning. But not for most people it isn't. No, Monday is, for most people, the beginning of the grind. It's that one day of the week that we don't thank God for. We'll thank God it's Friday, but not that it's Monday. So I wonder what happened. 
Why is it that God loves Monday and we don't? Well, let me tell you a true story that I think illustrates in some way why that is. Stefan Breitweiser was arguably one of the world's most successful art thieves. Over a period of seven years, he stole $2 billion worth of art from museums, auction rooms, and antique dealers all over France, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France, lifting them from 172 different venues. Most of the old masters, dating from the 18th and 19th century, he simply cut from their frames, rolled them up, and stuck them under his coat. He never sold any of the artwork, preferring to build a staggering personal collection which he kept at his mother's house. But he got caught, rather randomly, I might add, by a sharp-eyed security guard when he returned to the same museum in Lucerne, Switzerland, from which he had stolen an antique bugle only a few days earlier. Breitweiser confessed confessed everything to the Swiss police, telling them a full list of all that he had stolen from what museums he had stolen them, and telling them that he had stored them all at his mother's house. But here's the kicker. As soon as his mother heard of his arrest... She immediately went into action and destroyed most of the priceless art. She threw 109 artifacts, including jewelry, pottery, and statuettes into the nearby Rhone-Rhine Canal and destroyed 60 masterpieces by cutting them into little pieces and throwing them in the trash. By the time authorities had, had obtained a search warrant, About one week after her son's arrest, most of the $2 billion worth of treasure had been destroyed. When apprehended, she told police that she had destroyed them out of spite, fearing that because of her imminent, because of her son's imminent conviction, she would lose her visa to work in Switzerland and would be out of a job. Countless masterpieces ripped by a thief from the center from their place of honor to be shredded and trashed all out of spite, fear, and greed. I think work has suffered somewhat of a similar fate. Ripped from the place of honor that God gave it as the centerpiece of creation, it has been shredded and trashed ever since. And we are given the privilege to seek to restore it to its rightful place. So let me tell you another story this morning that illustrates the centrality of the workplace in God's plan of redeeming the world. You see, you don't have to uh, be like me and cross the ocean uh, in order to invest in eternity. And you don't only have to count on Sunday morning to put your $100 in the plate to invest in eternity. Tomorrow morning, you can invest in eternity. And I want to tell you a story about a man who learned to do that. There once was a man living in the ancient city of Jericho whose name was Zacchaeus. We'll call him Zac for short. He worked collecting the taxes that Rome had imposed uh, upon their conquered subjects. Zac, as you probably know, was not a big man. He was probably the smallest man in town. But what he lacked in, in, in stature, he made up for in smarts. For we're told that he had risen to the top of a la- the ladder in a very crooked business. So he was not only little, but he was rich. Hearing that Jesus, the popular rabbi, was coming through town, Zach decided that he wanted to get a look at this guy that everybody was talking about. So he ran out ahead of the crowd, climbed up a tree, and waited. We're told that when Jesus got to the spot, he stopped right there, he looked up, and he said, Zacchaeus, 
come down right now. I must stay at your house today. Well, Zacchaeus, I can imagine, crawled down from that tree brimming with pride while everybody else was bristling with anger, muttering under their breath, what does he think he's doing? He's eating with a traitor. But that day, Zacchaeus became a new man. Never had any religious leader ever given him even so much as the time of day. Yet Jesus had gone out of his way to show everyone that he was not ashamed to hang with the likes of Zacchaeus. And before Jesus left that day, this is what Zach said to him. He said, Lord, I'm giving half of everything that I owe to the poor. And if I've ripped anybody off, I'll pay him back four to one. And Jesus replied, today, this man, a true son of Abraham, is saved. He's forgiven. He's made new. And he is exactly the kind of person that I have come looking for. But then as if it wasn't enough that Jesus had just publicly affirmed a guy that everybody in town hated, Luke says this, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. And this is the parable he told, recorded for us in Luke chapter 19. Listen, or if you'd like, follow along in your Bibles, Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. Luke 19 and verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We don't want this mandarin over us. But when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said, Well done. Good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you shall be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit, you reap what you didn't sow. He said to him, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Here we have two stories, back to back. The first story, uh, in each of them, by the way, there is a hero and a villain. In the first story, the hero, I better use this thing. In the first story, the hero, in Jesus' eyes, is the villain in everybody else's eyes. This crooked little businessman who made, apparently, a lot of money and in the end used it for the kingdom. In the second story, the hero, or actually heroes, because there were at least two of them, were the two profitable businessmen who, by the way, made, again, a lot of money for the master and used it to advance his kingdom. Jesus specifically told this parable right after the account with Zacchaeus because he wanted people to make the connection. It says, while they heard these things, he told them this parable. 
He wanted them to make the connection. He wanted them to make the connection because he wanted to make a point. And this, I believe, was his point. Your occupation is a sacred trust on which he expects a return. Work is not a curse. It is a blessing. It is not to be squandered. It is to be stewarded. It is not to be avoided. It is to be invested. It is not a waste. Your work is an act of worship, which is why I believe with all my heart that God loves Mondays. All of you, as you may recall me saying last week, are called to full-time ministry every bit as much as I am. You are called to full-time ministry through whatever profession God has given you. And it doesn't take crossing the ocean to be in full-time ministry. You are in full-time ministry here. The question is, are you investing what God has given you or are you squandering it? Some of you are also called to full-time ministry somewhere else in the world. You just haven't been told that. You've basically been told all you got to do is pray and pay, but you can't play unless you become like one of us. And I'm here to tell you that God is calling some of you to full-time ministry by taking what you do so well here and doing it in another part of the world that is least reached. Crossworld is committed to helping you maximize the stewardship of what God has given you here and around the world. And as I said last week, our vision is to send disciple-makers from all professions who will bring God's love to life And we're especially focused on the world's least reached marketplaces. So let me say it again. Your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return. It is central, not peripheral. It is central to God's plan to redeem the world. Today, I want you to see from Scripture that that is true and then what it looks like to change the world on Monday morning. So why is your occupation a sacred trust on which God expects a return? Three quick reasons. Number one, because God loves work. God loves work. He designed it not as a punishment for sin, but as a pathway for worship and for world transformation. In God's mind, there is not this divide between the secular and the sacred. Everything in God's mind is sacred, including your work. You'll notice that the nobleman in the story, in the, in the parable, who represented God, did not call his servants, give them Bibles, and tell them, preach until I return. He called his servants, gave them money, and said, go do business until I return. Same thing with Zacchaeus. Jesus didn't tell him to leave his job for ministry. He apparently told him to leverage his job for ministry because that's exactly what we see Zacchaeus doing. You would think of all people, if Jesus was going to say, hey, man, that's a bad profession, you need to go into full-time ministry, he would have told Zacchaeus that. But apparently he didn't, and Zacchaeus said, Lord, I'm a changed man. Let me tell you now how I'm going to do business. And apparently that was good and acceptable. You know, it's mystifying to me how far we have come from God's truth when it comes to what he really thinks about the value of our work. In God's original masterpiece that's recounted for us in the book of Genesis. He put two primary relationships right as the focal point of that beautiful masterpiece of creation by which humanity would reflect God's magnificence and goodness and design and creativity and love and, and on and on. 
One was the relationship between man and his work. The second was the relationship between man and his wife. We see the first of those two relationships in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where we're told the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That was before the fall. Work was not a result of the curse. God had designed man to worship him through his work. That word work is actually the same word that is often translated in the Old Testament as serve, minister, or worship. For example, that is the same word that was used to describe the Levites' ministry in the tabernacle. Same work here as God used to put man in the garden and told him to work it. Same word. Or when God said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. Or some translate, translate it, worship me. Same word, to work the garden. God designed work as an act of worship, an act of ministry, an act of service to God. That is why Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that of the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Not it's as if it's the Lord Christ. No, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And if you think, well, that doesn't apply to my job, Realize that Paul said that to a bunch of slaves. He picked the lowest, hardest job there was and said, whatever you do, as a slave, as a slave, do it to the Lord because you're serving the Lord. We are called to fill the earth with worship through the man-work relationship and to fill the earth with worshipers through the man-wife relationship. That relationship, the man-wife relationship, was also set right there at the center of God's masterpiece and described a few verses later in Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then God puts the two of those relationships together when he says this. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's that? Through the man-woman relationship. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. How do you do that? Through the man-work relationship. Right there at the centerpiece of his, uh, at the center of his masterpiece. In other words, you fill the earth with worshipers who will worship me through their work by discovering and developing and harnessing and ruling over the riches and the wonders that are hidden in this magnificent masterpiece of creation. The wonders of physics and botany and mathematics and architecture and design and culture and on and on and on it goes. And when humanity chose to rebel against God, it was as if the thief of all thieves came and cut right from the middle of the masterpiece that beautiful focal point, rolled it up, stuffed it under his coat, and he has been shredding and trashing it ever since to the point that we actually see our work as part of the curse. And it's not. Think about it. The enemy has taken those two relationships, the focal point of the creation masterpiece, and he has destroyed them. He took human sexuality and he has turned it into the number one undisputed object of illicit, perverse, criminal, and exploitive and often violent activity that has hundreds of millions, if not billions of people in bondage to this perversion of the beautiful sexual relationship that he had put at the center of his masterpiece. And he's done the same thing to work. 
He took the man-work relationship and he has reduced it to meaningless drudgery for some, money-hungry greed for others, a necessary evil for most, and something to escape from on Fridays, but certainly not to thank God for on Mondays. And he is calling us to change that. Your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return because God loves work. Work is worship. Secondly, it's a sacred trust because God loves profit. He loves productivity. Profit and productivity are not a curse. They're a blessing. Now, greed is is sin, but not profit. Uh, Taking advantage of your workers to make a profit is sin, but profit and productivity in and of themselves are something that God created and that He loves. God so loves profitable business that the three heroes in these two stories are the guys who made a good profit and used it for his advantage in the kingdom. Now, Zach did it through greed and exploitation, but when he got saved, greed and exploitation were transformed into generosity and integrity, and God was pleased. Thirdly, your work is a sacred trust in which God expects a return because God loves reward. He loves to reward people who use his gifts well. To the guy who had a tenfold return, what does the master say? He says, well done, good job. But it doesn't stop there. Why? Because what happens in this life doesn't stop in this life. He says, well done, good job. You've been faithful in little. Now I'm going to put you in charge of much. I'm going to put you over ten cities. And these are not ten ruined cities like we see in some parts of our country today. These are ten kingdom cities because you see, I think it's in verse 14, it says the master returned to receive his kingdom. So this is the kingdom now. So he's put him in charge of ten glorious kingdom cities. Why? Because what you do here has a direct correlation on what will happen there. In fact, in Matthew's account of this story, The master actually adds this phrase, enter into the joy of your master. You see, what you do here is going to have a direct and exponential effect on what you enjoy there. Your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return because God loves work, because God loves profit, and because God loves reward. So, The question remains, how do I make my full-time job into a full-time ministry? How can I learn to love Mondays like God loves Mondays? Let me give you six really quick things that I think God will use to transform how you look at your job. Number one, love God supremely. Work as ministry is more about who you are than what you say. The greatest commandment ever uttered by the mouth of God was what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Anything of value that happens on Monday morning is a, is a result of the, the, the overflow of what's going on in my relationship with God. Your pastor is not the only guy around here who's supposed to be a godly man who studies the Word of God and so on and so forth. You are called to be every bit as much a man or woman of God as the people you pay to lead this ministry in your local church. Whatever happens on Monday morning will be an outflow of your relationship with God. Zacchaeus was so excited about about Jesus that he couldn't wait for Monday morning. 
He wasn't thinking, I hate Mondays and people hate me and my boss thinks he's God. His boss actually did think he was God, uh, but he wasn't thinking that. He didn't think, I I wish I could just go into full-time ministry. No, his life had been so powerfully impacted by the good news encounter that he had with Jesus that he could hardly wait for Monday morning. Monday morning was going to be great. First of all, he was going to go and help a lot of poor people with half of his wealth, and then he was going to show up on everybody's door that he had ripped off, and I'm sure he had ripped off a lot. You don't get to the top of a scum industry by being the nice guy. Every Knock on every door and say, I just want to tell you, last year I ripped you off a thousand bucks in taxes. Here's four thousand. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't it be fun to go to work if you, if your overflow of your love for God transformed your job like that? Secondly, you do excellent work, plain and simple. You ought to be the uh, the best employees that your that your boss has. That doesn't mean that we're going to be the best of everybody, but you do your best. We ought to be the best CEOs and the best managers and the best shelf stockers and the best whatever it is that we do. Don't rob your employer and dishonor your father by doing shoddy work. You remember the story of Joseph? How did he rise to the top? Read it in Genesis. He rose to the top because he was a godly man and he did excellent work. You read it. That's what it says. How about Daniel? How did he rise to the top? He rose to the top by being a godly man and doing excellent work. We're told there he was described as being ten times better, distinguishing himself above all the other uh, presidents because of an excellent spirit that was in him. So number one, you love God supremely. Just love God. Just love His Word. Just, Just cultivate your walk with Him. And then when you go to work on Monday morning, just do a great job. Be the best you can be. Number three, be people of integrity. Now, loving God and being excellent doesn't mean you're perfect. But it means you're honest. It means you're real. And people would far rather see someone who's real than someone who pretends that they're perfect. No, you've seen those bumper stickers that say something like, Christians uh, aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Well, I don't know what they mean by that, but... I, I think Christians need to admit when they're not perfect, just hide behind the thing, well, but I'm forgiven. No, if you're not perfect, admit that you're not perfect. If you mess up at work, go to your boss and honestly tell him you messed up. Go and tell him you were lazy. Go and tell him you did shoddy work. Go and tell him you did a mistake, but be honest. One of the guys on our board at Crossworld works for a large company in Kansas City, and he said, They don't expect me to be perfect. They just hate when I pretend like I am. Don't go to work and pretend you're perfect. You're not. But do the best job you can, and when you mess up, admit it. Fourthly, take time for people. Jesus summarized the essence of life in four words. You want to know what they are? This is the essence of all of life. Love God. Love people. Four words. That's it. Love God, love people. We already said in number one, love God supremely. Here I'm saying love people. Take time for people. Natalie, a friend of ours who uh, had been coaching one of her friends, Janet, in some simple steps that she could take to begin to turn life into ministry, she said to her one day, one of the things you need to do is slow down enough to actually see people, to take time for people. So Janet decided to try that. One day she was standing in line um, at the bank and she noticed ahead of her a man of Asian descent who seemed to be having trouble filling out the form. 
And so she helped him, and when she was done, she thought, wow, that felt good. I can do this. So as they were walking out of the door, out the door of the bank, she turned to the man to say goodbye and tell him that she was happy to have met him. And she had just begun to tell him her name when he said, I know who you are. She was kind of taken back, like, how does he know who I am? I've never met him before. He says, I know who you are. You're the lady who comes in my store every Tuesday to buy sushi. Here she had been transacting business with this man for months and had never seen him. We need to slow down and take time for people. If you cultivate your love for God, do your work with excellence, live lives of integrity, admitting when you're not perfect, and take time for people, that is 90% of work as ministry. The other two things are where the fun starts. Number five, watch and pray. That's easy to do too. I still haven't told you to open your mouth and share the four laws with them, have I? I just said watch and pray. You love God passionately. You do your work with excellence. You're a person of integrity. What you are in private and what you are in public is the same thing. And you love people. And then you just watch and pray. You just say, God, open doors and help me to see when you open them. Bob is a business guy. He works in downtown Kansas City. And he had never realized until recently challenged by a friend that God had given him his work as a sacred trust. And so Bob began to pray that God would open his eyes to opportunities to serve him through his work. So one day Bob is driving to work, and just as he's pulling on to the uh, expressway on the on-ramp, he looks over to his left under the bridge, and he sees two guys beating the snot out of this third guy. And so he wheels around, pulls under the bridge, jumps out of his shiny silver BMW, and he starts yelling to these guys, Hey, you guys, leave him alone! Well, now, Bob is not a very big guy, and when he started yelling at the two guys beating up on the other guy, they started advancing on him. (laughs) Well, Bob is not a big guy, but he's a little bit like Zacchaeus, I guess. He's a pretty sharp thinker. And so he says to them, You might want to think about what you do next, because I'm an off-duty police officer, and I've already called for backup. (laughs) With that, they turned tail and ran. Now, I guess he hasn't got far enough in the discipleship process. He just don't go telling blatant lies, but it worked. So he goes over to the guy who'd just gotten beaten up and he, he helps him get up and he puts him in his car and he asks where his camp is and he drives him to his camp. He gets them there and Bob pulls out his wallet. He wants to give him $20. And the man says to him, I don't want your money. What I need is a job. Well, Bob's jaw just about dropped to the steering wheel. Do you know Why? Because Bob's business is bringing jobs to Kansas City. That's what he does. And he says, it was as if God said to me, just watch what I do when you take time for people and start to view your life and your work as a sacred trust. And then the last thing is just tell him what you know. When he opens the door, Just tell them what you know. Jesus said to his followers, you shall be my witnesses. I think most of us have interpreted that as you shall be my lawyers. He didn't tell us to be his lawyers. Do you know what the difference between a witness and a lawyer is? A witness just tells what he knows. A lawyer tries to convince somebody. You are not called to convince anybody. You're just called to tell them what you know, to tell them what you've seen, to tell them what you've experienced. And if you step over that line, if a witness were to step over that line and start to try to convince the jury, guess what? 
His testimony would be compromised. They think there's something going on here. That's not his job. And that's not your job. Your job is just to tell him what you know. Tell him what God has done for you. Tell him how he's changed your life. Tell him what he means to you today, which is why it's important that you start out with number one of having a vital relationship with God every day so that you're not referring to something 25 years ago. You're referring to something that happened last week. God loves Mondays because God loves work. And God loves work because he created it as a means for us to rule over his world as an act of worship. I like to imagine God getting up on Monday mornings, not that he's going to be asleep tonight, but tomorrow morning, God gets up and he looks out over the the earth and he doesn't say, thank God it's Friday. He says, thank me, it's Monday. And as he watches Millions upon millions of people flooding the marketplaces of the world. He leans in a little closer in joyful anticipation of how his full-time ministers, that's you, how his full-time ministers will worship him through their work and how through the overflow of their love for him, their excellence in what they do and their integrity and their love for people, he is going to open doors for others to know him. But I have to tell you this morning that while that fills God's heart with joy, he also sees that there are hundreds of millions of workplaces around the world today that on Monday morning will not have a single gospel witness because we haven't gone because we're still here. And that is a tragedy that needs to be changed. You know, as I look back to that conversation with my son back in 2008, I I now realize that Joel had discovered the priceless masterpiece that God had painted many, many millennia ago. And even though that masterpiece had been soiled and stained with thousands of years of abuse, he could still make out in the center of it he and his work and he and his wife. And he was saying, I want to restore that masterpiece. Dad, I don't want to do it the way you did it. I want to take my love for business and do that somewhere else in the world. Worshiping God through his work, not just on Sundays, but more so on Mondays. As for me, my frustration of eight years ago has transformed into an urgency to find and release thousands more like my son and his wife into the marketplaces of the world. And as I said last week, if you would like to know more about what that looks like, Grab a copy of this book. There's about a dozen copies still downstairs on the table on the mission display, a Crossworlds mission display. Um, I would love for you to learn more about how God is using normal people, average people, to make disciples. We talked about each one reach one. I'm not talking about you going and planting a church. I'm talking about you going and making a disciple who learns to make a disciple, who learn to make disciples, and gathering those disciples into communities of faith which is the church. But you start where Jesus started, making a disciple. Now, I know we tend to look at Sunday morning as if, uh, well, this is the end of the missions conference. Guess what? 
<laughs> it's not. Tonight, and in fact, our pastor said, and it goes on after it's over. But tonight you have another opportunity. And, um, you know, I love preaching and um, everything God says is important, but I, I really feel like what I have to share tonight may be the most urgent message that I have ever shared with the church. And I know probably about half of you weren't planning on coming. I'd like to ask you, would you please come tonight? I'm not exaggerating when I say it could well make the difference as to how your children and your grandchildren will experience life. It's that important. Now, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning, even though we're not finished until tonight. You know, when Zacchaeus got saved, what did he do? Oh, that's great. I'm safe. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to have my quiet time every day. Well, that's good, but no. He said, this is what I'm going to do. So I'd like to know, what are you going to do? You know, we, we talked last week about, about God's heart and how out of sync our hearts can be with God's. We talked last week about how your two cents worth can change the world, how God has put in your hands some things that the world desperately needs, like English teachers, for example, or community health workers, or any of the businesses that you're in that, that have offices all around the world. And then we kind of expanded on that today, telling you how God loves Mondays and how he wants to use you to transform the nations of the world. I've, I've talked about you getting a copy of this book. There's an easy action step. Maybe that's the only thing you can figure out today. Okay, I'll buy a copy of his book. Okay, fine, good. Uh, maybe your only action step that you can come up with today, and I'm not forcing you to say, okay, I got my action step. But maybe the only one is, okay, I will come again tonight. If you can't think of any other action step yet, how about that one? Just say, okay, I wasn't gonna, but I'll come again tonight. So what I'd like to ask you to do as we close, and, and, and please don't stand up if you don't have an action step yet. That's okay, stay seated. But if God has impressed something on your heart this past week, he's, you feel like he's nudging you to do something. Whether it's as simple as buying a book or as coming back tonight, or maybe it's to go on our website and look about teaching opportunities around the world, or maybe it's going to your vice president of personnel and saying, next time there's an opening in Dubai, I'd like you to consider me for that position. I don't know what it is. But if God is nudging you to do something, would you just stand up right now where you are and I'm going to pray for you right now. Just anybody who has an action step. You say, I, I got an action step. I want you to pray for me. Great. Great. Well, if as I'm praying, your action step pops into your mind, you stand up and join these who are standing. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you that you have given us uh, the privilege of representing you every day that, that we do not have to leave our God-given wiring to become something else, but that you can use us as who we are. And Lord, um, I thank you for how you called me to um, use uh, vocational ministry skills to serve you full-time. And I thank you how you've called my son to use his secular 
skills in full-time ministry. And I thank you for these men and women uh, in this room today. You know what each one is thinking right now who has stood up, who has said, I, I have something I, I think you want me to do, and I, I want to commit myself to doing it. Lord, whatever they're thinking, whatever they're, um, they're, they're committing to do, would you help them to take that step? And would you help every one of us, Lord, to, to not squander the talent that you've given us, Lord, that none of us would ever stand before you someday and have to hear you say, you wicked servant, you knew what I was like and you wasted it all. Uh, Lord, may we use what you've given us for your glory, whether it's on this side of the world or the other side of the world, but may we glorify you through what we do, not just today, but tomorrow morning. In Jesus' name, amen.